Welcome to episode 142 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and uh, we're talking a little early. Uh, you probably noticed this showed up in your uh, 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 on your phone uh, uh, a day or two early because uh, um, I'm going to be out all next week in Israel, getting the full tour of uh, and. Um, uh, explanation of all of the uh, uh, tangled cybersecurity and other problems that the Israeli government faces, uh, along with what seems like the entire editorial board of lawfare. Uh, so uh, knowing I was going to miss uh, Monday, we moved everything to Friday, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll get this out on Friday. Uh, our guest today is Kirsten Todd, uh, uh, the executive director of the Presidential Commission on Enhancing National Security. Uh, uh, this is the uh, Obama administration's uh, uh, commission, uh, which was set up expressly to deliver uh, recommendations after the election on what the next administration should do on cybersecurity. You know, one wonders whether they had this next admis- uh, administration in mind, but uh, the uh, commission has delivered its report. And we talked to Kirsten about uh, the uh, recommendations of the report. Uh, um, for the news roundup, we have Michael Vadis with us, uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now an, a partner in our New York office, and Stephanie Roy, a partner in Steptoe's Telecom Internet and Media Practice, who is going to explain what net neutrality was and what it will become. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right in. Uh, Russia is not going away. Uh, uh, and the dispute over Russia's role in the election is not going away. A number of Democrats, not surprisingly, want to investigate uh, Russia's role in the election, but uh, uh, they're not alone. Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator, has said uh, he's eager to uh, uh, pursue this and to uh, punish Russia for its what he believes its role in the election uh, was. Um, and meanwhile, uh, President-elect Trump uh, is still casting serious doubt on uh, uh, the attribution of uh, uh, those hacks and uh, disclosures to Russia, uh, uh, suggesting that it was political rather than uh, um, real news. Uh, um, so once again, uh, President-elect is taking a, uh, a left-wing meme, fake news, and turning it around uh, uh, on the left uh, in his um, now-patented uh, method. Um, we have actually... So in, in, in one sentence there, you've, you've sort of uh, obliquely criticized the left as though fake news is not a real phenomenon, and let the president-elect completely off the hook yep. <laughs> for, his, for his unbelievable denials of things that the U.S. intelligence community has said forthrightly. Yeah, he's, he, he's wrong. He's taken action to influence our election. He's wrong I mean, on that. I, absolutely. Absurd. But 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 the left's fascination with fake, fake news is equally uh, uh, silly. It's, it's, uh, well, okay, it, okay. But let's, before, before you just shuttle off to criticize the left, or, or, or is the United States government going to be a wholly owned subsidiary of Putin's? Uh, government in Russia? Are we going to let them do this now because it, it worked to the advantage of the president-elect? It's outrageous what's going on. The fact that it's only Lindsey Graham and John McCain uh, among congressional Republicans that are, that are willing to say anything about this is, is really pretty telling about the state of today's GOP. I, I, well, I, I do think uh, I'm not convinced that they're the only ones who will say something about this. Uh, my guess is that if you took a vote uh, among uh, uh, Republican congressmen, most of them would say, yeah, they, they, they screwed around with our election and they need to pay. Uh, and I'd like to see an investigation. Uh, uh, we cannot uh, say, let the the beneficiary of foreign interference in our, our elections decide that uh, this time we're not going to do anything about it. That that can't be the way uh, we handle our uh, uh, electoral uh, uh, system uh, or uh, how we allow uh, foreigners to affect our uh, our domestic politics. 
Yeah, next time it could right. be the Chinese in favor of the Democrats, and God forbid that. Yes, I, I, I have no doubt, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not still not quite sure who the North Koreans prefer. No, I'm not yet either. But we will find out if this works for uh, for Russia next time. There'll be a whole bunch of people in uh, uh, trying to shape the election, and uh, Lord knows, maybe even Jill Stein will find somebody who supports her. Uh, all right. Uh, let's talk about some actual law, uh, Michael, since you jumped in. Uh, um, the Ninth Circuit has uh, uh, had a chance to rule on uh, uh, FISA wiretapping uh, in a case that's actually now uh, uh, eight years old. Uh, um, and uh, by and large, uh, FISA survives. Uh, uh, but uh, I did not finish the uh, opinion, so uh, I'm going to count on you to tell me basically what uh, uh, the Ninth Circuit has held and what's still open. Yeah, this uh, this is the case involving uh, the man who uh, tried to blow up uh, a large bomb during the Christmas tree lighting ceremony in Portland. Um, oh yeah, uh, a while back, and uh, the there was evidence introduced um, that was collected under the 702 program, uh, which is the, the part of FISA that allows the government to surveil without uh, individualized warrants um, uh, non-U.S. persons that, that are reasonably believed to be overseas. Um, and the court here held that uh, there was no Fourth Amendment problem with the, the use of 702, uh, even though the communications of a person in the U.S. were, were uh, incidentally collected as part of that and then used as evidence. Um, it's a fairly narrow uh, opinion in the sense that the court did not examine uh, another aspect of 702, which some people find more troubling, which is when, when evidence that's been collected under 702 is specifically queried to find communications of um, U.S. persons. That was not uh, at issue in this case, so the court didn't address that other aspect that, that's been raised about 702. One of the things I found surprising and somewhat troubling in this opinion, though, um, which has been largely overlooked, is that the court said that, there, that people have a diminished expectation of privacy when they send an email, because there's always a risk that um, the person you send it to could disclose it. Uh, you know, it, it didn't. It didn't say that 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 means that you, that the government never needs a warrant anytime it's getting someone's email. But it's it's not clear where the court, how far the court would take that principle that that people have a diminished expectation of privacy in email communications, as as opposed um, to uh, uh, your evanescent uh, uh, communications uh, orally, <clears throat> or your uh, right. Snapchat photos uh, uh, of. Uh, Whatever uh, you you want to communicate that day, right? Um, and 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 it, you know the, the opinion could be read as confining the analysis to emails that have all, already been received by the intended recipient. Mm -hmm. um, so you may have a greater expectation of privacy while the email is still in transmission for fractions of a second. Um, but once it arrives, you, you have a diminished expectation of privacy. Michael, well, uh, I, I, go ahead. As someone who doesn't practice in this particular field, how does that compare to our expectations of privacy in a, a sealed letter via the U.S. Postal Service? Well, if it's still in transmission in the post office, it gets lots of protection. The outside of the envelope gets a lot less. Once it's been opened by the recipient, it's subpoenable. Subpoenable, but it, it's subject to the recipient's expectations of privacy as well. Yes. yes. Yeah. But I, right. I, 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 and that's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent point because that's precisely the analogy that the court made. Um, it said we treat emails like letters and, and once it arrives at the recipient, uh, the, the sender no longer has a reasonable or has at least a diminished uh, expectation of privacy. Well, that's consistent with real life, right? We've all, we've spent 20 years learning that uh, emails are going to come back to bite us and we ought to stop and read it one last time before we send it uh, because we never know where it's going to be forwarded after we've hit send. Um, and so as a practical matter, you do write those emails with at least at the back of your mind the, the, the possibility that it's going to end up someplace other than the hands of the recipient. Right. But, Our, you know, it shows it's just it's another example of the third party doctrine being really fundamental to 
Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, and but courts are all over the place on on how far that doctrine extends. So it's it's going to take years before we get anywhere close to a resolution on this. And and lawyers will be employed the entire time. So there's lots, lots to like in this. Uh, uh, all right, um, uh, we now have a, a new uh, 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 secretary proposed for uh, 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 the Department of Homeland Security, uh, General John Kelly. Uh, I would say on the question of what does this tell us about um, how DHS will handle cyber issues? The answer is nothing. Uh, so we'll just have to wait. Uh, uh, the runner-up for that uh, position uh, was uh, Chairman McCall, the Homeland Security Chairman, uh, who gave a, um, a good comprehensive speech uh, uh, about the same day uh, and time that uh, um, General Kelly was uh, uh, picked uh, um, on a whole bunch of Homeland Security issues, including um, uh, some cyber issues. Uh, he is pushing again for a commission on encryption. Um, and I have to say um, that may have more legs than it used to, uh, uh, in part because while... Uh, President-elect Trump has been uh, pretty hostile to Apple and its refusal to cooperate. No one knows how seriously to take that hostility uh, on the one hand. And uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, Silicon Valley is and ought to be a lot more scared than they were uh, under the Obama administration that something might actually happen. Um, and it's only when everybody is a little unsure about what they're going to get that a commission has any chance of coming up with a, uh, uh, a compromise that uh, might be acceptable to all. So uh, we, will, uh, uh, we will see if the encryption uh, commission idea um, develops legs. I do not expect legislation, um, and uh, neither does um, the ranking member, the, the Democrat, on um, the Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff. Um, but don't you think this is all just pointless? Um, I, I could tell you right now, what any encryption commission would recommend. It would be the same as every other expert working group or task force or commission has recommended when it comes to this, that the government shouldn't have a backdoor because backdoors weaken security for everyone and make it easier for the Russians and the Iranians and the Chinese and, and hackers to, to break in. But the government needs to do more to research you know, how it can access uh, encrypted communications without getting a backdoor. So we need to give more resources to the FBI and to the NSA, and we need, to, we need to devote more training to develop our cybersecurity workforce, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I, you're absolutely right. That would be a completely useless report, uh, and that would be basically a victory for Silicon Valley, which only has to you know? def defend the status quo. It doesn't have to do anything. On the other hand, uh, you know, you could imagine a report that says, look, uh, uh, half the world is already on the verge of uh, imposing certain kinds of restrictions on encryption. Uh, um, the uh, if you're afraid there's, that that there's going to be weakness in the encryption because of laws that require uh, decryption uh, or uh, require cooperation with uh, law enforcement, uh, we already live in that world, and uh, the FBI ought to get the advantage of um, uh, the cooperation that people are planning to give to the French or the Germans or the Chinese. Um, so I, I'm not completely convinced that it's hopeless. Well, uh, well, that means, well, we, I think a commission would come out with that sort of uh, view if you were on it. <laughs> I can imagine anyone else who uh, participated in a commission who, who uh, espoused that view. But uh, let me make a plug. If any of our listeners are interested in knowing exactly which half of the countries in the world, or close to it, or, or even more than that, actually restrict the use and import uh, and sale of, of strong encryption? They should subscribe to our international uh, guide, a country by country guide to encryption regulations, CryptoGuide.com. And they can contact me for more information. This episode of Step to uh, Cyber Law <laughs> Podcast is brought to you by the by the Internet Law Stepto Cyber Guide uh, or Crypto Guide. Uh, uh, yeah, it's actually it's a it's a great. Uh, um, I I I, I want to dwell on that just for a minute because it is the most successful book I wrote without ever selling more than about a hundred copies. Uh, it was a book about encryption regulation around the world. Uh, published it. it Probably did sell, maybe it sold 200 copies. It was a, uh, a complete commercial bust. Uh, uh, but, um, 
we we put it online and started selling subscriptions to it uh, uh and uh, the people have been subscribing for the last 20 years because it's the best uh, uh resource up to date resource uh, you can get electronically on encryption trends around the world so, I, um, Michael, thank you for keeping that up to date. Uh, all right, uh, returning to our regularly scheduled programming, uh, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, the FCC because the major fight of the last several years has been net neutrality, or there's some more politically correct term for it, but uh, um, a and a bitter fight that finally was resolved in the most regulatory fashion possible, at least statutorily, by saying internet service providers are basically going to be regulated as common carriers with some exceptions so that we can say they have an obligation to carry everything in a non-discriminatory fashion. Uh, The the goal was to make sure that uh, uh, ISPs didn't use their control of the pipes just to get into the content business and discriminate against uh, uh, particular content providers. now we have a new administration after the fight to get net neutrality into uh, law has been won, and it looks as though this could hardly be a more hostile administration. Uh, and the question for Stephanie is, what's going to happen to net neutrality? It's uh it's the unwanted stepchild, really, of the FCC uh, after January 20th. The two uh, Republican commissioners, Commissioners Pye and O'Reilly, and indications right now are that Commissioner Pye, the senior Republican commissioner, will be elevated to chairman, although that could change. As we know, uh, decisions aren't always made quickly or um, stuck to right now in the transition period. But uh, the president's party will enjoy three of the five commissioner seats, and so we'll be able to control uh, the votes of the commission. And uh, Pye and O'Reilly are both on record as uh, pretty hostile to the net neutrality, have been the entire time uh, that the commission has been considering it. I actually began my career here at Steptoe uh, helping comment on, you know, the uh, notice of inquiry from the FCC about how it should contemplate uh, ensuring um, open pipes uh, for third-party content over the Internet. And here we are today, and uh, it looks like it's going to go away. So, But the question is how. There are a number of ways. First, it's uh, the rules which came out in 2015 are and are in force right now. So they've been in force for a year and a half. Right. And so they'll be in force for quite some time until – uh, whatever action is taken to undo them. And yes, we have every indication that some action will be taken to undo them. So to undo them, they'd have to go through the entire rule writing process again. Right? Um, it's open, a little bit of an open question. There, there are, is a petition for reconsideration in ah, the docket, okay, still pending. Yes, all right. Although they're specifically their petitions complaining that the FCC did not go far enough. Right. In imposing, um, well, that would be, obligations. That would be, so, they so wanted great pe- regulation. Those, pe- those people, uh, the people who filed those are frantically trying to get them back. I well, <laughs> and, but, uh, this may not be in the collective consciousness that much, but the rules are still pending. Uh, the DC circuit, uh, upheld the rules in right. its, uh, the initial appeal from the, um, some of the telecom companies and cable companies, but, uh, they filed a petition for reconsideration. Uh, asking um, for en banc review and for a uh, for a panel review. The FCC at, did. No, 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 oh, no. The the AT and T. Yeah, the opponents the of the rules. Yes. And that request for 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 uh, uh, another review is still pending at the DC Circuit. So you could come in. Like, in theory, the commission could come in and confess error, say we we won, but we didn't really want to. No, the well, the briefing is over at, at that. Right. So. Uh, uh, those of us that have worked for uh, seven plus years to get the rules in place at least don't have to face that immediately. But uh, the if the en banc review is granted, there would be another set of briefings, and of course, you know, we don't expect the FCC to defend. Right. Um, of course, there's a question of could somebody else come in and defend, like Easily. Congress of Doma. Could the interveners, which Stepto represents, come in and defend? Of course, they could. And uh, that's thought. what we'd likely to do. But the question is, is it? be worth it because who wants to spend the money on something that might 
that, that, that's that, going to be right. taken away, taken apart in another manner, anyways. Well, and and worst case, I suppose, but the longest haul is going back through the same process that led to the rules and and taking them off the uh, the uh, exactly the books. another uh, rulemaking proceeding. But right. there's also uh, uh, Arguably, a congressional solution would be quicker. Ah, yes. Uh, they've uh, been contemplating a uh, full rewrite of the Communications Act, but that would take some time. And given the legislative agenda of the incoming administration and the Republicans in Congress now with control of both the upper and lower chambers, uh, I, I question how much priority something like that is actually yeah. going to get. But actually, and a congressional they, they, solution is favored – is likely to be more favored by net neutrality supporters at this point, I think, than uh, regulatory. Because they thought they would right. get, they, they think they would get something. Right, like a preservation of the no blocking, right. for example. But what is sure to go away at, at some point uh, over the next few years is the classification of Internet access service as a common carriage service, right. as a utility, right. um, which is really what gets you the meat. Because that gets you civil uh, litigation capability, and you don't have to always seek redress from the FCC itself. And uh, you're more likely to get relief from courts, I think, than you would be the FCC in this scenario. But, but those lawsuits won't work now because the the, the, the courts will ask the uh, uh, regulator with primary jurisdiction, uh, what do you think about this lawsuit? And the regulator with primary jurisdiction will say, we hate all these lawsuits. Yeah, they could. You know, there are two aspects of the open Internet rules. There are some pretty clear things, the bright line rules, no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization, uh, you mu- and then there's the transparency requirements. And then there's the no unreasonable conduct standard. And that's the standard that would be difficult to seek civil right. to enforce civilly right now because the FCC hasn't fleshed that out yet. And historically, uh, courts have deferred to the expert agency on these questions. They don't have to, though, of course. Um, it's a prudential common law doctrine. It's not something that has to be followed. So it's an abuse of discretion standard on review. You know, so those are those of us out there that might argue that the court should take it up. Okay. But uh, it, I have to say that uh, it's not looking bright. Um, it'll, so, so at, at minimum, me, the stepchild would be shuttled off to boarding school. <laughs> so let me ask a question because the stepchild has a half-brother that uh, uh, is mm-hmm. directly relevant uh, here, and that is uh, Cybersecurity uh, Authority, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the sort of unanticipated consequence of pursuing regulation as a uh, uh, common carrier is that uh, the uh, FCC acquired enormous jurisdiction over the security of uh, uh, the ISPs. And um, I'm not sure that while that wasn't the intent, I'm not sure this FCC or this administration is going to want to give that up. The flip side, yeah, because if they're not common carriers, the uh, oversight goes back to the FTC, which is not viewed that favorably by the incoming administration itself. Matter of fact, some Certainly not by the FCC commissioners. Well, either. well. <laughs> um, and, and that is a general um, conduct standard again at the FTC. They just enforce that. So one might argue that the common carriers would prefer a more specific regulatory regime like they could encounter at the FCC. But uh, you're right. It, once the, And if that common carriage is overturned, the FTC, they have to basically have reasonable business practices. And absent national security and privacy legislation, uh, that's where the um, jurisdiction will lie. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I, you're, you're, you're not going to be out of work after all, it turns out. Well, so. you know, we're still, still waiting bated breath. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, let's turn to our interview. Uh, uh, Kirsten Todd uh, um, is the executive director of the Presidential Commission on Enhancing National Security uh, uh, and has a, a, a long history of working in government. Uh, uh, this is your first commission, though, right? It is. Yeah, well, uh, I'm going to ask you. And I guess the the joke after that is it will be your will be your last. <laughs> well, you know, I I, I have to say I've been on 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 uh, uh, in a position similar to yours on a commission, and uh, uh, we had a staff guy for whom it was his third or fourth uh, commission, and um, uh, I said, "How did that happen?" He said, "Once you get the stink on you, you can't get it off." Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Uh, well, so I, I, I went through this uh, uh, report. It, it is odd, as I said at the beginning, uh, uh, the report was ordered up by the Obama administration knowing it would be delivered after the election to the new president, probably not thinking this, that we were, uh, it was going to be delivered to this new president, but there it is. Uh, um, and if I, if I read the background right, the story is that the Obama administration came into uh, uh, office with the president having said, uh, in 60 days, I'm going to have a plan to deal with cybersecurity, because it was actually a big issue for him. It was one of his national security issues. Uh, uh, and then producing the report turned out to take longer than 60 days, and no one was happy with the process. Uh, um, and I think... For quite a while, the administration felt like they had uh, been stuck with a process and a report uh, that they hadn't really had a chance to uh, uh, think deeply about. Um, and if I'm, uh, if I understand it right, the president said, "I want to give the new president uh, a." Better running start, so I'll have this nonpartisan group of people uh, spend uh, uh, six or seven months putting something together, uh, and then it'll be much more thoughtful than um, I inher- than the report that I inherited. Does that sound about right? It is, Stuart, and I, you know, I give you a lot of credit because a lot of people actually haven't framed it that way. And I recently was talking to someone and, and making that point, and you, you're exactly right. I mean, this is. You know, this President uh, Obama came in, had a 60-day review, really didn't allow for a lot of thoughtful strategic thinking. It was very much of a, uh, you know, just this, this hurry up and, and kind of figure this stuff out. And this commission intended to be nonpartisan, bipartisan from the beginning because, it, you know, four of the members were chosen by the leadership in Congress, um, as well as other bipartisan uh, selections, was really this president's way of saying to the incoming administration here is the product of eight months of thoughtful thinking on the part of some of the best minds in the field um, to look at what we think, based on government and industry input, are going to be the key issues that are going to be facing the digital economy uh, immediately, but also, uh, as importantly, if not more so, into the future. So I, 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 I'm not going to be full of praise for the report. There are some good things in there and some bad things, uh, but on this um, score, I think um, the report, with maybe one exception, is pretty good about not picking sides, not seeming too um, enthralled to any one party. There is a very favorable res- uh, a reference to the uh, 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 the president's proposal for an information technology modernization fund, which was his proposal, if I remember right, and which is dead i think um it's not going to happen because uh, of the the continuing resolution uh, uh, am i wrong to to think that this is an obama administration initiative that didn't actually get funded well i think so tony scott at omb came up with this um coming in from the private sector and i i don't know where it stood on the hill i mean i think at the end of the day i'm not sure that it was funded at the end but what is really important about this recommendation isn't so much whether it's a partisan or who, who developed it, but the idea that we have to be much more thoughtful about how we fund innovation in the government. Uh, and Senator Warner, you know, talked this morning about uh, his idea that, you know, having DOD have uh, the, the least expensive innovation or technology be, be the one that uh, wins all the time doesn't always lead to innovation. When you have a, a cycle, a budget cycle that works on 12 months rather than more of a rolling cycle, we're not inspiring to the ability to bring on innovation. And I think one of the key elements to this, um, this fund is looking at how do we bring innovation and agility into the government to ensure that the technology in government is up to pace and that we're not actually creating a system that inspires legacy uh, and the, the re, the reuse of legacy systems. Yeah. I used, I used to believe in that because, you know, replacement of IT is sort of a very lumpy expenditure and finding the money, uh, uh, it always seems like a something you should do next year uh, and finding the savings to pay for it doesn't, doesn't occur. But it, it does seem to me that one of the big advantages of cloud infrastructure is 
a lot of the expense suddenly becomes recurring rather than uh, uh, a one-time investment. You're not buying a lot of equipment uh, when you spin up instances in the cloud. Uh, so I wonder if this this is a problem that actually was more serious in the last 10 years than it will be in the next 10 years. Well, I think if we can, if we could be ensured that the government would be moving to the cloud across the board quickly, um, then, you know, to your point, the issues, you have to look at where the issues are. I think that's one of the reasons why the commission looked at the structure of government to say there are things we could be doing, whether it's a shared services network, whether it's uh, ensuring that cybersecurity and infrastructure protection functions are integrated into a civilian agency. Um, there are a lot of pieces here, and so we can't uh, pull one or two out to uh, mean something bigger than the than the picture. I think moving things to the cloud, understanding all of that, has to be examined. But we have to have the right structure in place, the right lines of authorities, responsibilities, capabilities, in order to do those things that in the private sector we're seeing as the obvious next step. And government needs to be organized effectively to do so. And the commission was adamant about how do we structure this strategically or put forth the ideas that we think are critical to ensuring that government, in many cases, leads. It doesn't always have to be the leader. Uh, it certainly can't fall behind. It needs to be keeping up. But in most cases, it should be able to lead. So you, you've got about six big um, themes here, and that's one of them, that the government needs to, to be better organized to deal with uh, um, security issues. Uh, and that's, you know, it, it's hard to argue with that. Uh, um, uh, but, and there are a couple of things, you know, that yes, there should be an assistant to the president for cybersecurity uh, and he ought to appoint, he or she ought to uh, uh, report to the national security advisor, not somebody else, uh, uh, or not 16 other people. Uh, um, but, uh, boy, you you guys uh, just uh, punted. Uh, you said Congress should consolidate cybersecurity infrastructure protection under the oversight of a single federal agency, which, of course, it largely is for the civilian sector by law at DHS. But DHS's name doesn't appear. It's it's remarkably silent on what department ought to get this. Uh, uh, was there actually a debate about whether all of that uh, work that DHS is doing now should be moved someplace else? Well, um, I think for inside the Beltway, and, and I know for you as the first assistant secretary within DHS, it, it, it's remarkably not there. But I think if you look at this document from the strategic perspective of laying this out for an incoming administration, one of the, the tensions and the reconciliation that the commission, I think, did a tremendous job at was knowing when to be strategic um, in a way that could put forth actions that could be thoughtfully uh, interpreted depending upon the structures that were there, and also knowing when to be prescriptive. And the key here is obviously it's the civilian agency. Um, I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, as people read this, um, they know, you know, for those inside the Beltway that are familiar with the structure are aware of the legislation that went up to the Hill. So it's not that DHS is notably absent. This is more, you know, clearly this was intended to be for DHS. But the idea in laying out, sometimes when you label an agency, it can distract from the actual substance of the recommendation. Well, maybe, but, but, you know, but wait those, a minute. But, you know, look, come on, I, I'm reading through this. You've got about 40, 50 recommendations, and it it it, it name checks every agency in government, uh, it, uh, it, it reads like the uh, uh, like a State of the Union address, where the most important thing is to get your agency mentioned. You've got you've, you've got OSTP in here, uh, for, uh, for God's sake, and uh, uh, NIST and NCP and uh, uh, DHS is mentioned elsewhere. Well, NCP the Department is a, of Justice. NCP is a new program. Okay, NCP sorry, I, I apologize. NCP You're right. Is a new program. Uh, um, the FTC gets a name check. Uh, uh, you know. It, it, my my favorite or least favorite uh, uh, was the name check to OPM, where you say that OPM should establish a presidential cybersecurity fellows program. Tell me there there weren't um, raised eyebrows and actual guffaws in the uh, commission meeting room when that recommendation came up. Uh, uh, surely uh, well, OPM so is Stuart, the last. I mean, place. let me push back a little. If, if you're going to pull that one out, as I mean, I think. 
you know, where it's interesting, there was a group of people that came out at the beginning of this commission that it's always very easy to go into the, you know, the negative pile, right? Like, how is another commission going to do something good? Oh, why are you doing that? But if you actually, and and I think if you look at the input from, particularly from industry as well as from government, although government has to be, there are a lot of uh, priorities right now for government. Um, and, you know, reading a commission and giving a, a feedback on it immediately isn't the most important one. Um, but if you look at what we're doing well across the board in industry and the private sector and government and what's not doing well, uh, OPM, you can't possibly argue that the Presidential Management Fellows Program isn't one of the more successful workforce programs that that agency has created and that government has. So it's not a – there was absolutely no guffaw or rolled eyes when wow. you're saying, okay, let's take a program that's working successfully – um, it's attracting people out of graduate school, bright, talented people. If you look and you look at the acceptance rate of that program, you have some bright minds that aren't getting accepted because it's so competitive. So you take an effective program like that that's working well, and now let's focus it to cybersecurity. And that particular recommendation says not only looking at it for recent graduates, but let's also take a look at mid-careers. And you look at these successful public policy mid-career programs who pull people out of what they're currently doing give them a surge of skill set, expertise, and knowledge learning, and it works well. So, I mean, I think... I, I, I completely agree. I, I, actually, I don't have an objection to that because I, uh, I'm a big believer that uh, um, really all the good people in cybersecurity uh, uh, are self-taught in, in substantial uh, um, respects. Uh, but if there was ever a recommendation where silence about the a uh, particular agency that would uh, actually be responsible for it might have been appropriate. I think this is one. Um, I mean, OPM is just not but where you totally look for But they're totally unrelated, Stuart. Pardon? Well, so no. I mean, I, I don't think so because if you are truly looking at the merits of that program, that program is about interdisciplinary. It's about rotations throughout government. So OPM is the Office of Personnel and Management. So at, at a bare minimum, any program that deals with personnel management for the government is going to go through that agency. It has very little to do with the cybersecurity capabilities of that agency. But as we often say, too, the best place to go is the place – I mean, your most secure credit card transaction is going to be a target after something has happened. So, you know, from a human nature perspective, to make that argument, I mean, no one's going to be more sensitive to their security right now than OPM other than the government writ large. <laughs> but that's still that's, – that's a little bit of apples and oranges because this is not about a cybersecurity capability of the agency. It's about developing cybersecurity talent throughout government. And being able to exchange that talent across several agencies. So let me let me let me let me say what I thought was good about this report, because uh, uh, I'm I don't mean to be completely critical, although I will make fun of a few things. Say, um, a, it is a um, as a a menu of or maybe an agenda. Um, it's pretty well done. That is to say, I, many of us might disagree with. Some of these rec- uh, uh, recommendations, but the idea that uh, those recommendations ought to be evaluated by the new uh, uh, team uh, makes a lot of sense. This is a more detailed transition plan than the uh, administration that's coming in probably has right now. Uh, my guess is that uh, it would the best way for the cyber transition team to go forward would be to take all of your headings and maybe even the um, uh, the gist of the recommendation and write their own set of recommendations under each of those headings because they're not gonna they're not gonna do all the things that, that you say and, and you know some of the things that you suggest are either not likely to be particularly useful or uh, maybe even actively not so such great ideas but you know some of them are good ideas uh the new team has to evaluate it and you've done a service by saying these are all topics that sooner or later you're going to face uh Trump administration you might as well get started on them now so uh, I, take, I, mean, I, think, I, know, I realize that's that's fake praise point. but it's it is praise <laughs> That is, I mean, clearly being able to lay out a roadmap um, on key issues from people all over the country that are working on this, both industry and, and government, and who are doing this for their day jobs and understand the trade-offs 
um, is is important, and this was a unique group of individuals to do so. So, did did you end up having to do a big chunk of the drafting? That would that is the usual role for either the general counsel or the executive director. And I'm guessing that it fell to you and maybe a couple of people to uh, to take all the grand the great thinking that occurs in these meetings and turn it into prose. I would say what was unique, without a doubt, about this group of individuals is they were writing early on. I mean, we had all agreed. The commission had said, and this was part of the very beginning, that in order for this to get done on time is we would need to start writing initially. And so we had subject matter experts and, um, and myself included and others who were writing on different ideas. But what the commissioners started to do was also um, just start thinking and drafting and writing, and that happened very early on. And so um, what you see in this report is really a compilation of writing and input um, from all 12. And I Which, think that's one of the things our, our chair has certainly cited um, post-December 1st as uh, one of the unique aspects to this report um, and to this commission was the uh, steady and uh, commitment, steady commitment and investment in this report and in each of the pieces of it. Well, it's sort of inevitable in, in commissions like this, especially ones with some diversity, uh, that, uh, you know, people come with different ideas. Uh, and so, um, the, the value in them is that you end up with a, uh, an agenda full of all the issues that uh, people from a variety of perspectives uh, um, uh, might uh, uh, want to raise, uh, which is why I think that it, it is valuable in that regard. Uh, when we first talked about this on Monday in the last podcast, uh, uh, Michael Vadis made a point that I, I, I have to repeat, which is um, it is almost um, discrediting in a report on cyber to use the phrase public-private partnership. Uh, um, we've been talking about that since the 90s, and it hasn't made our cybersecurity better. Uh, and, and we don't use that phrase. No, but, but <laughs> I, I, let, me, let me ask. You, you had to have so gone to So we don't know. This, I mean, I think it's a really important point. You can't say that without – you. tell me a place where you find that phrase in here. All right. Um, Action item 1.1.1 says you ought to launch a private-public initiative. I don't think changing the uh, but, the, the order but we is. We did it. not use partnership, but we did not. I mean, you can't think that you're going to do anything with cybersecurity without engaging the public and the private. So if you have another way of talking about the public and private, then by all means. But if you look at this report, do a find and replace. You will in no place see. And Michael should have taken a closer look. No place see the words public-private partnership. I'm, I'm willing to bet you. I will bet you, Kirsten, that you did exactly that, and that in place of that, you put the words 1.1. You should collaborate. You should have a private-public initiative. You should. The government should work closely with the private sector. The National Cybersecurity Private-Public Program. Uh, the private sector should launch a joint cybersecurity operation. There should be a formal collaboration with the government. Uh, I. A, a, a national public-private initiative, uh, um, a, a body so of experts in the private option? and public sectors. <laughs> I mean, you're 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 saying private, public-private partnership with different words, but this is the same kind of no. mushy concept. No, but if you look at the recommendations, I mean, this was something that the commission felt very strongly about. If you look at the recommendations, the difference here is. And if you've looked at other reports and all of that, they said, we should strengthen public-private partnerships. Well, what does that mean? I mean, there's absolutely nothing nothing in that. What this commission was very, very um, adamant and, and felt strongly about is actually laying out specifically what that means. And so if you look at the language supporting those efforts, and again, if there's another word that you can do, and we didn't find and replace gives us too much credit. It was just that we all, everybody <laughs> felt strongly that you're, there's no way we're going to use that phrase because it has such a loaded meaning across the board. And what this commission discussed was where does the public and the private collaboration, intersection, whatever word that, you know, gives it different meaning that you have to, I mean, at some point you still need to use the same words so that people know what you're talking about. Where does it make a difference? Government has done tremendously well at incident response. You know this from your time at DHS. It's always about reaction. When something happens, how do you react? What the commissioners felt strongly about is reacting is not good enough. If we're truly looking at cybersecurity across the board, we need to be looking at what it means to bring these two sectors together before an event. So taking a page out of the DOD playbook, we're talking about joint planning, deliberate planning, exercises, training, ensuring that the 
industry knows what government does well before an event. So if industry is detecting malicious activity on a network of a company, if I'm a company and I'm detecting that malicious activity, and by all accounts, it's looking to me like it's coming from a nation state, you turn government then knows nation state activity and nation state background better than anybody, better than any sector. So here is an opportunity where government's expertise and nation state knowledge will intersect with the industry's understanding and detection of specific malicious activity on that network to be able to collaborate to understand how to either prevent it, how to address it or mitigate it. And I think that is the key to this is it's the strategic level thinking. So somebody asked me recently, well, how is this different from the ISAC? The ISAC is at a junior level. This, what we're talking about in the NCP3 program, um, which is uh, in the further action item there, is it's looking at senior industry leaders working with government, similar to the President's Intelligence Advisory Board, which is tremendously effective, being able to take that senior leadership to look at this before an event and also what happens during. And then what we heard a lot from industry is if I'm a, if I'm a company getting attacked, not by a nation state, but just in general, what are my responsibilities? What do I have to do? And then how do I access the government's efforts? So and me, so we me, cannot look at cybersecurity into the future without truly articulating and defining specifically the roles of government and the private sector together to address this threat. Did you talk about the enduring security framework? Uh, I, I didn't. I, I so NCP3 is an is an evolution of the enduring security framework. Okay. It's not the same, but it's you know some of the some similar principles. So there, there's, you know, I, you, you've mentioned the, the fact that I was at DHS a couple of times. Uh, I was also general counsel of the National Security Agency, so I tell people that I'm a child of a broken marriage. Uh, and uh, uh, there's surprisingly little about NSA here, considering their expertise. In fact, the only reference in the at least the, the recommendations that I saw was um, that their contributions to the curriculum that teaches people cybersecurity um, uh, should continue and be uh, uh, built upon. Um, a, the administration that's coming in has, you know, the president-elect has said he's going to ask for DOD to tell him how it's going to defend our critical infrastructure against cyber attack. Um, a, do you think that that's inconsistent with the uh, the report or uh, – uh, is it uh, uh, just not a topic you discussed? So this this report focused on civilian, um, the civilian side of things. And I think what the commission tried to do and how it looked at things across, you know, in respect to relationship to DOD is obviously it's approaching and addressing the civilian side of cyber with the understanding that uh, defense obviously has a key role. General Alexander was one of the commissioners, so obviously he brought the NSA perspective as well as other um, elements of, of defense. So we were uh, acknowledging that through this, but the commission determined at the outset that this was only going to be a civilian report looking at how cyber integrates with uh, civilian agencies. All right. So I'll, let me let me ask um, <clears throat> last question. Uh, um, what, What's your favorite recommendation? If you had to pick one, to, and, and, and I could, uh, you know, I know, put you on the spot, uh, uh, not your chairman's favorite recommendation, but the one that uh, is closest to your heart, what is it? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I would say the way that the commission talked and the deliberations and what we ended up with on IoT, um, I think because it, it cuts across all of these imperatives, um, but looking at the Internet of Things, and this understanding, I mean, so this cuts into the consumer's responsibility for cybersecurity, industry's responsibility for cybersecurity. It looks at incentives. It talks about research and development. It, I think I, I like it because it threads in so many key pieces to this, and it very much is looking at the digital economy today as well as into the future. And a lot of the recommendations are woven between what is the immediate need as well as the longer term need. And this is probably, um, this, I, I, I will say that on, in that section, uh, this commission's report comes closest to embracing regulation by saying nice things about the regulatory agencies and their authorities and, and use of the framework. Uh, uh, it comes closer to embracing regulation than really the last 20 years of uh, commission reports on this topic. So obviously I would push back on that because I think the commission was actually pretty adamant about not 
looking at regulation, the one sentence in there that references regulation, I believe it's only one, what we talk about is we should let market forces do their job, um, both with industry and government. And if market forces fail, then you need to bring in incentives to ensure and, and catalyze the right development. When you're dealing with life-critical devices, driverless cars, pacemakers, if all of those things don't work, um, then the commission did feel it was necessary to say then regulation is an obvious final step, but that was not in support of regulation. That was much more to say government and industry need to work together to figure this out. The same way that NIST said, you know, during the process of the framework, this is the, this is your last best chance before regulation. It is more of the incentive actually than, a, than what the destination will be because I think everybody feels pretty strongly and agrees that particularly when you're dealing with internet connected devices and looking at the proliferation of IoT devices, getting industry and government to figure this out together without having um, regulation immediately imposed on it isn't going to be the answer, but it's creating guidelines and direction to get to the most effective outcome. That's a public-private partnership where one party has 51% and the other has 49 is my guess. Uh, you uh, said everybody... it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, last question. Uh, <clears throat> are, are you planning any other events or discussions or uh, publications around this, or is your work here done? No, I think, you know, I, one of the other elements that's just impressive about this group of individuals is obviously they – feel very um, invested in what was what was put forth here and the idea of making sure that we educate and are briefing and trying to integrate these recommendations both into the public and private sector. So I'm hoping that we'll be able and we're in the process right now of discussing doing some events uh, around the country to talk about the report and some of the different aspects of it. Um, and so figuring, figuring that out, we were obviously very focused on getting to last Friday and now uh, looking at what comes next and being able to define that. Well, you did a great job of explaining and uh, uh, where necessary defending the report. So, uh, Kirsten Todd, <laughs> thanks so much for for that. Uh, thanks also to Michael Vadis and Stephanie Roy for our news roundup. Uh, the Cyber Law Podcast, podcast is open to feedback, uh, so send your questions, uh, suggestions for candidates or topics to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, uh, Kirsten, because you didn't come here, you did not get one of our immensely valuable uh, Cyber Law Podcast mugs. Uh, um, uh, oh, I yeah. will come by for that. <laughs> You're welcome if to I do can, that. If I can get it later. <laughs> uh, yes, <clears throat> uh, we've had we've had at least uh, one listener write in to say, uh, "Gee, how can I get those?" Uh, I'm not sure we're going to sell them because uh, uh, I'm not sure that fits our business model very well. Uh, we'd have to sell a lot of them <laughs> to pay for the time that I spent talking about it just now. Um, uh, but if you send us a suggestion for somebody we ought to interview uh, and we end up interviewing them, uh, absolutely we'll give you a, a mug and in fact, if we get enough of them we'll hold a drawing and we'll send out uh, mugs to uh, more than uh, one participant. Uh, so Kirsten, you, you might get two. If This has been episode 142 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson uh, and by the Steptoe uh, uh, Crypto uh, Guide. Uh, coming up, we'll be joined by Matt Green, Assistant Professor at Johns Hopkins uh, Information Security Institute. And if we get a chance to do an interview uh, while we're in Israel, we'll uh, make that a bonus episode. Uh, uh, and we hope you, you'll join us for those and other uh, interviews as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. Thank you.